Good morning. All right. How many of you have already felt the presence of the Holy Spirit this morning? It's been a beautiful day in church. Amen. Amen. How about to say this with me? Relentless. Relentless. God relentlessly pursues us. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful thought. We are continuing in our series, Relentless. Today we are looking at Acts 25. So if you have your Bible, pull it up with me. I'm going to read this in its entirety, uh, not because uh, uh, of any kind of uh, compulsion, but I feel like we need more of what the Word says than what I, what I have to say. Amen? So we're going to look at this together. Acts 25, if you've got your Bible with you. The Word says, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. And Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. And after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened by court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. <coughs> Excuse me. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing against wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left a prisoner. <coughs> and when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that he's not a Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When he came here, I did not delay, but convened the case to the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and to stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his special appeal to be held over 
for the emperor's decision I ordered him held until I could send him myself to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he will probably tomorrow you will hear him. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with a great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would empty me of myself, that you would give me stamina and strength to boldly proclaim the word of God. God, I pray that you would be with the listener, not that they would hear from me, but I believe that they would hear what you have prepared for them in advance. God, I thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to stand on this platform and to preach, thus saith the Lord. And I pray, God, that you would give us strength and understanding this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. I want to share with you this morning as we get started. Mark, will you pull that picture up of that young man? I came across this story in Christianity Today a couple of weeks ago. This is a picture of a young man named Anatoly. He's a 26-year-old member of the Urban Bible College in Ukraine. And his last act on earth was carrying the suitcase of a young mother and her two children as they raced across a collapsed bridge in Kiev. All four died when a Russian bomb landed nearby. And after evacuating his wife, Diana, and other family members to safety, he returned to help his church minister to the people that were being affected by the war in Ukraine. His pastor said that he was deeply spiritual, a man of good Christian character. When he saw a need, he tried to help. The pastor said, we miss him very much, and it's a tragedy for his family and for our church. And then the pastor closed with a line that has stuck with me for the last three or four weeks or so since I read this story. He said that God has a plan beyond our understanding, but at times it's difficult. How many of you this morning would agree with that? sentiment that God has a plan beyond our understanding, but at times it's difficult. This week I asked myself this question. If we were in a similar situation here in America, here in Albemarle, would I, Bo Linker, stay and serve our church and our community if we were being attacked in the same way? I wanted to say yes, but I didn't want to do so flippantly. 
And I'll be honest with you, my heart became very heavy as we look around and we see our society and the shambles and the crumbling state that it's often in. I talk every week to dear friends of mine in the Methodist Church and other denominations that are splitting before our eyes, and we see multiple, multiple churches that are closing. We see school shootings and rumors of war. And this is what I believe most in my soul. The most important task for the church right now is to continue preaching the good news of the gospel. Because churches have become a lighthouse of hope. A lot of folks are trying to find help and hope in other places. Folks try to find hope in the bottle. Folks try to find hope in entertainment. Folks try to find hope in their phones. Do you, have, do you know that you have more access to all of recorded history and information than any generation that's ever preceded us? A lot of folks are trying to find hope in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, regardless of who occupies the office. But I want to remind you this morning, if you don't get anything else out of our time together, true hope is only found in Jesus Christ. True hope is only found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that Albemarle First Assembly will be a beacon of light that will keep preaching, praying, and providing help so that churches not only in Ukraine but around the world can continue to be lighthouses of hope. We are continuing or nearing the end of our journey through the book of Acts. And I'll be honest with you, this is one of my favorite series that I've ever been able to be a part of. Last week in Acts 24, Nate shared with us this truth. When your faith is challenged, defend it cheerfully. No one can take away your testimony. You can argue scripture with people. You can argue eschatology, pneumatology, any other kind of theology you want to, but you cannot argue or someone else cannot argue you out of your testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Amen. And that is something that you can hold on to when times are challenging. One of the keys to understanding the Bible is to identify the literary genre a book or a section of scripture is written in. That's one of the things that I loved about seminary because we delved into all these different types of genres. There's apocalyptic uh, scripture. There's biography, exposition, parable, poetry, prophecy, and narrative. And when I began studying Acts 25 a few weeks ago, I wondered what kind of message, Father, do you want me to preach for my friends from this passage? And since this section of scripture is story, I struggle to find a preaching outlet. By the way, over 40% of the Bible is made up simply of narrative. And Paul records in 2 Timothy 3 that God's word is inspired, important, and instructive when he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God wants us to learn and live out this passage so that we can grow in doing good work and bringing him glory. And here is the main idea for today. God providentially accomplishes 
his purposes through his people. There are times that I think, God, I am so fallible. I have such a a weak heart sometimes. I have no energy sometimes. I feel so weak sometimes. I know that I'm imperfect, and if you don't believe me, ask my wife. And Sure, why not? Wow, wow is correct. Yes, sir. My point being, I look all the time and I think, God, how can you use imperfect people like me? And then I look to Scripture and I see that God always uses imperfect people like me. And sometimes God works through people that they don't want God to work through. Amen? I decided to give a couple of nicknames to help us this morning with the narratives of the people that we find in this story. Number one, it's Festus. Festus is the people pleaser. Number two is the religious. They're the status keepers. Number three is Paul, the gospel preacher. Four is Agrippa and Bernice, the pleasure seekers. And then finally is the Savior, Jesus, who is the life changer. Number one, Festus, the people pleaser in verses one through six. We're introduced to a new governor named Festus. The word says, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against him, that he summoned Paul to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and kill him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, Agrippa went down, or Festus went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. Festus became governor after Felix flamed out. And if Felix was a procrastinator, Nate talked to us last week about how he kept Paul in the governor's chambers for over two years. If Felix was the procrastinator, Festus was the people pleaser. He quickly realized that the mood in the country was tense. And in large part because of Paul, who was a prisoner in Caesarea, wanting to get on the good side of the Jewish leaders after being in office for three days, he travels from Caesarea, the political center, to Jerusalem, the religious center. And when Festus arrives, the religious leaders brought up charges against Felix's leftover, Paul. And after hearing the charges against Paul, Festus was urged, send him back to Jerusalem so they can ambush and kill him along the road on the way. Two years earlier, a rogue group of 40 men tried to assassinate Paul, but now the Jewish leaders wanted to do it themselves. And instead, Festus told them that they could travel to Caesarea and they could bring their charges to Paul face to face. We see this penchant for people pleasing in verse 9 when the word says, but but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, here's some questions to ponder. And some of these that uh, I'm asking you this morning are ones that I had to ask myself this week. And sometimes I didn't like the answer that I gave myself. Are you a people pleaser? Do you go out of your way to please others? Do you fear man or do you fear God? 
Paul settled this when he wrote to the church in Galatia when he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. He summarized who he served in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he said, So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Even people pleasers cannot stop God from working his way and his will, but it's much better to settle on whose approval we are seeking. God providentially accomplishes his purposes through people, whether they are his people or not. Number two, the religious, the status keepers. Have you ever been in a church and the people said, well, pastor, we've always done it that way. My grandmama hung that stained glass window in 1954. No, we can't do anything to change it. We've always done it that way. The status keepers, these religious leaders were more interested in keeping the spiritual status quo than they were about discovering the truth in Jesus Christ. In the narrative in verse 7, the word says, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many uh, serious charges against him, those that they could not even prove. In the Greek, the phrase stood around him meant to stood around him in a menacing way like a pack of ravenous wolves. They're ready to devour Paul. They accused Paul of very serious crimes. It's similar to what was done to Jesus in Luke 23 when the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. If you drop down to verse 24, we read what Festus said about these religious status keepers. He says, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. The phrase, this man, reminds us of what Pilate says about Jesus in John 19. Behold this man. The word shouting in the Greek shows that they are crying out, yelling, demanding that Paul be put to death, using the double negative to intensify their demands that he ought not to live any longer. This shows the callous hardness of the human heart. When people refuse to submit to the Lord, they often seek to attack or eliminate Christianity so they can keep living the way they want. We see this in John 3, where Jesus himself said, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When you think about it, often those who oppose Christ and Christianity are religious people. I came across one commentator this week that said the most volatile hostility in the world towards Christianity comes from religious people. And the reason for that is because the master of all religion is Satan. Historically, the persecutors of Christianity have been those who were religionists. Do not expect religious people to be tolerant, oftentimes because they are not. I want to ask you, are you more interested in keeping the status quo in your life than you are about seeking the truth of a relationship with Jesus Christ?
have we as a church, a community, and a society become spiritually sleepy? Has ritual replaced relationship? We've always done it that way. Do we get threatened when someone brings up spiritual matters? I want to remind you yet again that God providentially accomplishes his purposes through his people. Third, we see Paul, the gospel preacher. I know this is a rhetorical question, but how many of you have felt these last couple of years with COVID have been difficult, and the more difficult it's become, the faster it seems that life has gotten. I've talked to folks when we talk about inflation and gas prices, but we talk about the way people relate to each other, the comfortability that people have about arguing on Facebook posts and saying things to each other privately that they would never, ever have the gall to say to someone's face. How many of you remember the phrase that we looked at that said three years ago this was our last normal week and nobody knew it? I keep asking myself, when are we going to get back to normal? And if this is normal, if this is the new normal, what are we going to do with it? So many people that I talk to, from teenagers to middle-aged to senior adults, have felt imprisoned and isolated Others I speak to have become defeated and depressed, angry and agitated, and we've seen that even just recently. After spending two years in prison, Paul presented his defense in verse 8. And the thing that drives me crazy about Paul and makes me envious of the champion of the faith that he is is that after two weeks of being in prison, Bo would have been irritated and agitated. Probably after two hours, amen? Paul's been in prison for two years. And he doesn't appear to be bitter or angry one bit because he is receiving what he had prayed for. He states, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer who committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. This appeal to Caesar marks the rest of the book of Acts as Paul, as we'll see, makes his journey to Rome in these final chapters that we'll see in the next couple of weeks. Here's a couple of reasons that Paul doesn't want to be tried in Jerusalem. He's already been before a Roman court and is committed to share the gospel with these Roman leaders. This is now his fourth defense of Christianity in at least two years. He's also done nothing wrong. He knows they want to ambush him. He knows he won't get a fair trial. And he also wants to go to Rome, the center of the entire known world at the time, 
to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is so committed to taking the gospel to Rome that he appeals to have his case heard by Caesar himself. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Rome, especially if he felt like he wasn't getting a fair trial. And once the appeal was made, he would be sent to Rome accompanied by Roman protection along with a statement of facts in the case. And once the appeal was made, it was irrevocable. As we've already seen earlier in this book, Paul was laser-focused on fulfilling God's mission for him. Earlier, a few weeks ago in Acts 19, the word said, Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go to Rome. Paul knows that this is what he is called to do. To stand trial and to share the gospel. This week I talked on the phone with someone who was going through some significant struggles. And she shared, Bo, God led me to an obscure book in the Old Testament by the prophet Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, the word says, I will restore you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Then my friend that I spoke to on the phone made a stunning statement of faith to me. She said, God will work everything out for his glory and my ultimate good. I'm going to say that again. My friend who is not a pastor, who has never been to seminary, has a greater understanding of faith than most people I know when she said, God will work everything out for his glory and my ultimate good. I want to ask you, as you process the problems that you encounter in life, are you seeking to glorify God and are you looking for gospel opportunities? Are you living on mission by striving to reach your neighbors and the nation for Christ? And are you willing to do whatever it takes to be a witness? If you were put on trial, like Paul, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? God providentially accomplishes his purposes through his people. Number four, we see Agrippa and Bernice. I labeled these the pleasure seekers. In verse 13, the word tells us that Felix received some important dignitaries who came to celebrate his installation as governor. And when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. Now listen to this very carefully. Some people I talk to say the Bible is not very interesting. If you ever think there's no Jerry Springer moments in the Bible, you are wrong. Listen to this. King Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great, also known as the Butcher of Bethlehem. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who murdered James and put Peter in jail. He died because of his pride. I will try to keep this PG-related for the kids in the room, but Bernice was his sister. 
with whom he was in an incestuous relationship with. Her first husband was her uncle. Bernice became the, mister, the mistress rather, of Emperor Vespasian and was also immorally involved with his son Titus, the emperor who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. If you're following the family tree, this also means that Drusilla DeVille, that Nate introduced us to last week, was their sister. Here we see the decadence and the depravity of the human heart. This is a tangled web of a family tree. The Roman culture was filled with unmitigated idolatry, promiscuity, unbridled anger, abuse, the onslaught of all sorts of depravity. And oftentimes we see that our society is headed down the same slippery slope. Once a nation leaves its moral footing, it goes adrift. More than 200 years ago, a man named Edward Gibbon wrote a six-volume series called The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire. If you've never read it, I encourage you. It's fascinating reading. He spent 20 years studying the Roman Empire to find out how the nation that was the greatest nation in recorded history could so suddenly and unexpectedly implode from the inside out. Interestingly, the first volume was published in the year 1776, the year our country was founded. Gibbon listed five primary reasons for the collapse of the Roman Empire. Number one, the undermining of the sanctity of the home, the nuclear family, which is the basis of society. Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public money on bread and circuses, carnivals, festivals, sporting events. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure, with sports becoming every year more exciting and more brutal. Number four, the building of gigantic armies to fight external enemies, while the deadliest enemy, the decadence of the people, lie within. And then lastly, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form losing touch with life and becoming impotent to guide it. When I read through some of that this week, I thought, man, this should be a sober warning for us because we are cycling through the same pattern that wrecked the Roman Empire. Festus sought the council of King Agrippa and laid out the details of the case against Paul, and Agrippa was so intrigued that in verse 22 he asked if Paul be brought back in before him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in. Agrippa and Bernice find great pleasure in all the pomp because they were hedonists. They were narcissistic. They loved being on display like many who parade on the red carpet in our culture. As they marched in wearing these royal purple flowing robes, they were joined by all the military leaders along with the rich and the famous. The Greek word here for pomp is the root word for our word in English, fantasy, meaning all this adulation would soon evaporate and be worth and meant nothing. Amidst this procession of self-centered adulation, Paul the prisoner was bought in wearing a tattered tunic with his head chained. 
But I love this about Paul. I believe that he walked slowly, but his eyes flashed with power that comes through the Holy Spirit. Here we see Paul before Gentile authorities, a king, and the leaders of Israel. Next weekend, Nate will share with us how Paul took advantage of this gospel opportunity. I'll ask you this morning, are you a pleasure seeker? Are you about the frills and the pomp and the moment? Do we just live for ourselves or do we live for the goodness and the betterment of others? We have got to be careful because sin is a slippery slope. God providentially accomplishes his purposes through his people. And lastly, this morning, there's Jesus, the life changer. While there are countless characters in the storyline of Scripture, the main character, obviously, is Jesus. The main person, the plot, the purpose of the Scriptures themselves. Check out how Festus refers to Jesus in verse 19. Rather, they had certain points of disputes with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. The word religion in this context can refer to superstition or reverence depending on the context. These leaders believed that Christianity was superstitious, like having a rabbit's foot. While those of us who know Christ get to experience a reverent relationship with the resurrected Lord of the universe. This phrase, a certain Jesus, means one specific. This tense indicates that Paul keeps on asserting and affirming the resurrection repeatedly. Something had happened to Paul that they could not argue out of him. Has something happened in your life that others cannot argue out of you? And is that something a relationship with Jesus? Some time ago, back last summer when we first started this series or when I came on board and prepared to preach in this series for the first time, I sat down and I read through the books of Acts to see how often the resurrection was celebrated. Did you know that the resurrection is brought up 27 times in 28 chapters? I was struck by how central the resurrection was to the gospel message in this foundational book. And here are just two verses from those opening chapters. In Acts 1-3, the word says, After suffering, he, Jesus, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Secondly, Acts 4.33 says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Wherever Paul went, he told the people of the certainty and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he did, he often encountered opposition. Paul summarizes these charges leveled against him last week when he says, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged to you by this day. In Acts 25, 20, we read that Festus called Caesar the title emperor, which literally means Augustus, which means the revered or the worshipped one. 
He was also at a loss of how to investigate these questions because to Festus the king, these stories about the resurrection did not make sense. He had been taught how to handle insurrection, but he didn't have a clue what to do with resurrection. In verse 26, Festus called the emperor my lord, which means he didn't understand the resurrection and the reign of the one that specifically applies to Jesus. There is only one Lord. One of my heroes is the great Baptist missionary Hudson Taylor, who was fond of saying Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Now today, I've tried my best to introduce you to some of these characters. And I want to ask you this morning, which one represents you? Are you Festus, the people pleaser? Are you religious, the status keeper? Are you like Paul, the gospel preacher? Or are you like Agrippa and Bernice, the pleasure seekers? As the band returns to the stage this morning, you may be in the place of pain like Paul for two years. And you may ask me, Bo, how can Paul have so much hope in the midst of suffering? I want you to ask yourself that question with me this morning. How can Paul have so much hope? Hope in the midst of suffering for years he suffered for the gospel. For years. And I believe the Lord spoke to my spirit this week and he gave me the answer to that question. How could Paul have hope? How could he have hope? For someone that is hurting that's a single mother, for someone that is hurting that has cancer, for someone whose parents have dementia or Alzheimer's, for someone whose children are struggling with depression and mental health issues, for people whose finances are hanging on by a thread, for people whose marriages are barely hanging on. I talked to one of my best friends two weeks ago, and he showed me something in his wallet and it was the business card of a marriage divorce lawyer. How can so many people that are dealing with so much pain and so much anguish, how do they hold on? To me, the answer is quite simple. How could Paul hold on? It's because Paul knew the end of the story. We watched some home videos this week and, and I heard my grandfather's voice for the first time that was not audibly in my head, but, but I heard it on screen. And, and one of my papa's favorite things was to watch uh, Paul Harvey. Any of y'all old enough to remember Paul Harvey? Maybe a couple. Paul Harvey used to have a, a tagline. Y'all remember what it was? That's the rest of the story. You asked me this morning, Pastor Bo, how can Paul hold on? How can those people that you mentioned hold on? And, and the simple answer is this. Paul knew the end of the story. I'm going I'm to do something with you right now, and it may take just a moment. 
but I'm going to, to read this over you in a prayerful way. The Apostle John records in Revelation 21 the end of the story, the rest of the story. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes, and I just want you to hear this as if someone is speaking it over you for the first time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with him. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. For this is the spirit of death. He said the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those names who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life.